Really? That's my dad's fave. children that they keep discovering 
They'll light this candle for those children so that they have a way and a place to go back to. They have a light to go back to. That their spirit has a place and a light to go back to. Because unfortunately, they're still finding those, those students. Um, could everybody mute their themselves, please? Would that be possible? I'm hearing some feedback. That would be great. So, that's my spirit name. And that name translates into North Windman. I'm from the people of the Meshkegawak, uh, uh, people of the river up by James Bay, um, Chapel Creek First Nation Bearclan. And I am a beautiful person. It took me over 45 years to be able to say that last part in that declaration that, uh, that I'm a beautiful person because I was lost, I was broken, and I didn't have any purpose or meaning in my life. And that changed once I found that pathway back to culture. So what I'm going to do today is I'm going to open it up with a prayer. I'm going to pray with some tobacco. This is the first medicine that was gifted to us. Um, we were gifted this medicine, and it said when we came from the, from the heavens and from the stars, when our feet gently rested on this planet we call Mother Earth, what we came down right beside was a tobacco plant. A tobacco plant was gifted to us so that we'll always be able to have that connection to spirit, to the spirit of people, places, and things, and always have that connection to the spirit of the Creator. When we pray with tobacco, and we always give and receive tobacco with our left hand, because that's a hand that's closest to our hearts. And when we pray with tobacco, as soon as we put tobacco on the ground, it automatically opens up a channel from this world to the next. And that's how our, our prayers go, our travel. And then when we pray with tobacco and we put it into a fire, as soon as that tobacco ignites, it's going to uh, take our prayers up to, up to the Creator and up to the spiritual world. So with that, I'm going to say a prayer. And then I'm going to put the tobacco in the smudge bowl. And what I have, the medicines in the smudge bowl, I have cedar, I have sweet grass, and I have some lavender, and then I'm going to put this tobacco in there. And then we're going to light that medicine in the smudge bowl, and I'm going to wash it over myself, and I'm going to virtually wash it over you. And I'll, I'll go through um, how we smudge and why we smudge. Watch as we come together today, I ask that we come together in a good way and in a kind way. I always ask that we give thanks for the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, all the medicines that are gifted to us from creation, and the water that we consume. As we come together today, I always ask that we remember where we sit within that circle of life. I always ask that we remember our connectedness to the two-legged, to the four-legged, to the wing ones, and the swimmers and the crawlers. I always ask that we remember our connectedness to those four winds and what those winds bring. I ask that we remember the, the connectedness to the north wind for its medicine, the connectedness to the eastern wind, which brings us life, the connectedness to the southern wind, which brings us our ancient teachings. And then the connectedness to the Western wind, which takes us to our ancestors of the spirit world. As we come together today, we, need, we always need to remember those trees, those standing ones, and how they give us shelter, and how they give us ceremony, and how they give us the ability to make our, our tools and our instruments. And then we must always remember the plants, all of the plants and all of the medicines. And then we must always remember our connectedness to the rocks and the minerals and the mountains and the rivers and the streams and the oceans, all this equals within that circle of life. And as we come together today, I always ask that we remember our ancestors. I ask that we remember the, the trials and the struggles and the, and the barriers that they went through in order for us to be here today. I ask that we always remember our spirit helpers, our grandmothers, and our grandfathers, and our connectedness to not only creation, but our connectedness to the spirit. 
So now I put that tobacco into this smudge bowl. And then I'm going to light this up. And, and why we smudge? We, we wash that smoke of the medicine. We wash it over our hands. So that anything that we touch or create, we're going to touch and create it in a good way. And in a kind way. And then we wash that medicine and that smoke over the top of our heads. So that any thoughts that we have will be good thoughts and kind thoughts. And then we wash that medicine and that smoke. We bring it over to our eyes. We wash our eyes. So that as we see things, we're always going to be able to see things in a good way. And in a kind way. And then we bring that medicine up to our ears. We bring that medicine up to our ears so that we're always going to be able to hear the best of everyone and everything. And then we pull that medicine and that smoke into our, pull it into our throats so that when we speak, we say kind words. And when we speak, we have a strong voice. And then we take that smoke and that medicine and we pull it into our hearts. We pull that medicine into our hearts so that we have empathy. And we have love for ourselves and love for others. And then I always pull that smoke right into the core of my being. Right into my belly button. I pull it right in there so that I can always stay centered as I do things like this. I'm not looking for balance right now, but I'm looking for centeredness. And then I take that smoke and we wash it down each one of our legs. We wash that smoke down each one of our legs so that we can always remember how sacred life is with each step that we take on our mother, the earth. As our mother, the earth gives us everything that we need to sustain life. And sometimes I forget that. And then I usually raise some smoke up to the crater and I push some smoke down to our mother, the earth. Now, I'm going to share something with you before I sing a song. And, and I'm going to share something with you from, from an elder. His name is Peter Schuller. And he's an elder from the Mississaugas. Of the credits. Peter is all about preserving what we have. Peter's all about slowing things down. And Peter's all about sharing what he knows. And one of the stories and teachings that he shared with me back in the summertime was that in 1965, the Inuit knew about global warming. I was born in 1965. Why and how did they know about global warming in 1965? It's because their glaciers were receding at a rate. They were receding at a rate that they'd never seen before. And they knew from that experience that something was going on in creation. So in 1965, the indigenous people already knew about global warming. And really, I don't know, I think I've only been hearing about it for the past maybe 20 years. As indigenous people, we have the deepest respect for the land. We are the land and the land is us. We believe that everything on the land is our relative. And that's why we treat everything with the utmost respect. And we have teachings now that were passed down to us hundreds of years ago. That talk about this fork in the road that we're coming to as mankind. And we, as mankind, have a decision to make. Either we keep going down the road that we're on, which isn't going to last for very much longer, or we start going down a different road. A different road that that slows things down. A different road where we respect everything. A different road where we take only what we need. And a different road where we always have unconditional love for everyone that we need see so I just wanted to share that might resonate with some of you it might not but I know that you know we were talking about the snow we were talking about the temperatures from different parts of the country before we got into this meeting when everybody was greeting each other 
I live in Waterloo Region. We just got our first really big snowfall last week. I remember when I was a kid, there's pictures of me standing close to the hydro lines on the side of the roads. And those stories that we hear about our parents walking five miles through snow this deep, that's true. true. <laughs> there used to be that much snow. Not anymore. That's concerning. That's very concerning to me. Saying that, the song I'm going to sing is a thank you song. It's a song that I sing in the four directions. Sorry, I dropped my, I dropped my stick. It's a song I sing in the four directions to give thanks to the Creator for all the beautiful, wonder, wondrous things that, that our Mother the Earth gives us. It's a song of thank you. It's a song of gratitude. So as I sing this song, think of things that you're grateful for today. Maybe think of things that you could do a bit differently to preserve what we have. Or maybe just enjoy the song. My sound stopped. Way away, 
that was thank you donia for sharing yes for shield lodge's website that was such a great way to get started um i'm now going to turn things over to our two other guest speakers um so mary pickering and Jania Pestuzic. Mary is a senior advisor with Low Carbon Cities Canada, LC3, um, also vice president of strategy and partnerships with the Atmospheric Fund and Tamarack board member, not board chair, sorry about that. And um, Dania Pestuzic is our co-CEO uh, here at Tamarack and um, just a delight to have you both. So. Uh, I'm going to try to find you and put the spotlight on you. I didn't read full bios because that can be tiring for folks. So I was thinking of asking you to kick us off if you could introduce yourself and share why this session is important to you. And I'll start with you, Janya. Oh, thanks, Laura. Can you hear me okay? Fantastic. Okay, Mary, thanks for the nod. That helps. Um, well, thank you. Uh, it's just a real honor to be here with all of you today. Um, and thank you so much for what you're doing in your communities and for creating this community together to learn from one another um, and to offer all the ways that you're agitating for what needs to happen um, into our world. Really just deep gratitude. Um, my name, as Laura said, is Danya Pastuzic. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am a white and Jewish settler first to what's now known as the US and now to Canada. Um, I live in what's uh, colonially known as Renfrew County, Ontario, so close to some of you, relatively speaking. I am on the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin people. Um, traditionally known as the Anishinaabe Algonquin people are the original inhabitants of a wide swath of the Ottawa River, which is right outside of my window here. Um, and I thank the Algonquin people for hosting me and my family on their ancestral lands, Miigwech. It is also the ways of settlers like myself that have led to the need for communities to organize around climate adaptation and mitigation. And so I really think about Laura's call earlier um, in this conversation to not just make an acknowledgement, but to, to name what I'm doing, um, to move toward reconciliation and to move toward justice. And right now what's coming up for me is a commitment to reconciliation for me looks like building real relationships with Indigenous people and thoughtfully engaging them and projects that I'm involved with before moving forward. And it looks like creating offerings that build the skills in myself um, and in those that I have the privilege to come into contact with around intercultural competency, around conflict resolution, around human rights, around anti-racism, and around simply recognizing that we are all connected to one another um, and all of our, our livelihoods and ability to thrive are connected to each other's. Okay, so this session is important to me. Um, for a few reasons, I, and, and it really comes down to me um, to being related to what I feel like I'm accountable for in my short time on this earth. So I'm a mother of two boys, and I want to leave their generation and the generations that follow them with lands and with water and air and economic systems and social fabric that will let everyone in their generation live a really good life. Um, I'm a person who loves to run and bike and be in nature, and I want everyone on this planet to have spaces where they can be in nature in the ways that they want to. And this session and the ones to come are a critical tool for realizing those hopes. Professionally, I'm a partnership builder. Um, I worked in Utah for a decade before joining Tamarack last year. Oh, Utah. And that work was all about building and sustaining partnerships. Um, and those partnerships really saw stubborn inequities lift. We saw high school graduation rates, healthcare access rates, kindergarten readiness rates become markedly different in communities because of multi-sector, multi-generational partnerships. And so these sessions, to me, are pathways to bolstering the partnerships that are really capable of impacting well-being for millions of people, um, capable of, of mitigating uh, and adapting um, to climate change, and pathways to building the creative and inclusive and loving new governance structures that not only move outcomes, but create the kinds of community that Clarence challenged us into, and that achieve other less tangible things that we can't ever anticipate, but are, that are always really beautiful. 
Um, and then finally, these sessions to me are important because of the power of patterns. I see my job at Tamarack as being partly as a pattern finder. Um, along with many other people, I am accountable for understanding what's happening in communities, seeing themes, um, exciting the actors in our current systems who have the power to act on those themes, and then working with others to get to the work that addresses the themes. So really excited for this session um, and for all the ones ahead because of the products um, of the building blocks of new patterns that I know are going to emerge. Mary, I went on way too long. Over to you. Not at all, Danya. Uh, <laughs> thanks. Hello, everybody. And um, I'm Mary Pickering. Um, I'm coming to you from Peterborough, Ogojiwa, Ontario. And this is uh, Michisagi Anishinaabe Territory Treaty 20. And like uh, others speaking before me, I want to reflect on how important these acknowledgements are in terms of being embedded in our work and our commitments and uh, as a leader in uh, my organization uh, we are developing um, commitments and tools and actions to try to integrate reconciliation work equity work uh, with climate work so that's an ongoing journey I think uh, as we say it's daunting we're going to get it wrong we're going to do it anyway we're going to continue and learn and that's going to take all our community and all the support and lessons we can get um from each other so i really appreciate the way that this uh, session started today in a good way so thanks thanks you all for that and uh as for me i have been working on climate issues for three decades and um i'm currently working as a senior advisor with low carbon cities canada which is a new network of um, specialized, dedicated urban climate action centers that were established a couple of years ago across Canada in larger cities. Um, and what we're looking to do there is to accelerate our municipalities' success in achieving their goals on climate actions while creating valuable community benefits at the same time. So this is an integration, a piece of integration work. Uh, we're looking to accelerate. We feel urgency. We want to get improvement solutions to scale. We really believe in uh, how, um, you know, harvesting ideas from a diversity of communities to the same goals with these different ways that bring us innovation and can bring the best solutions. So I think the way that we are set up and the way that we think at Low Carbon Cities Canada is really vested in a commitment to the power of communities. And that's really what brings me here. And um, I'm also a member of the board at Tamarack. It happened for several years, and I came to Tamarack when it was not doing climate programs. It's a poverty reduction focused agency. I don't know. I knew like nothing. I got nothing. I came to Tamarack. I had nothing on that. I'm a climate um, uh, activist, but I realized how important it was to begin to understand the connections between, and the, and the best way to do that was to partner with other people who understood that very deeply. Never going to understand it. The same way myself but i know i can rely on partners to help me understand those issues so it's been a real wonderful journey with tamarack and now we have some climate programs like this one that are focused to, so i'm so pleased i'm thrilled and <laughs> that this is coming right inside tamarack now and i just think it's a wonderful piece of leadership so th this session is important to me because really um you know i think we heard from clarence Inuit communities knew in 1965 there was something wrong. Our communities are essential to understanding um, climate solutions and how to implement them. And we need bridgers like all of you to help us uh, elevate that, to help us create the uh, pathways to help our cities um, do a good job of engaging and tapping into all our community knowledge and insight and you know, get to the goals that we're all seeking. So. That's why I'm really excited to be here today and look forward to more conversation with all of you. Thank you both for those uh, opening reflections. You both spoke about the importance of communities, cities, and place-based work. And I want to dive into that for a minute because um, I know you both come from very different contexts as well. And Mary, you're more, you've been in a big city, like working in Toronto um, on climate action the last decades, and you're through LC3 supporting the big cities um, across Canada. And Danya, you live in a, a more of a rural setting, and 
you know, Temerac supports so many small, mid-sized and large cities, but um, just because of the number of smaller municipalities that are in Canada, there tends to always be a large number of smaller members. So I wanted to ask about um, how you see the role of um, cities and communities in ushering in this the future that we want and need and want to recognize that on the call today we have um, from small town of or village of Tassis in Vancouver Island of 400 people up to big cities like Regina and Halifax and uh, London and others. So. Mary, you want to start? You want me to start? Well, I'll jump in and I'll, I'll just kind of poke this one a little bit because uh, I actually think there's a lot more things that join us between smaller and larger communities than, than divide us. And uh, that being said, I, and, and that there's things that we need to work on together because we, we're all part of systems, we are all part of food, we're all in our electricity systems, our communication systems, our food systems. They, they run throughout um, all our different communities in Canada. So uh, that's, but you know, I really appreciate too that there are important differences and subtleties. I'll talk about my work as, as um, Laura was saying, as focused in big cities. Um, you know, these, these are, these, a lot of people live there. <laughs> a lot of people live there. So for Low Carbon Cities Canada, the cities we represent, uh, you know, represent the majority of Canada's population and as a result the majority of the emissions associated with our our personal activities in cities. So it's very important that we um, empower larger cities to develop and scale up solutions. Um, they have the tools, which is really exciting. They work on energy, they, uh, they work on land use planning, they work on um, um, you know, building approvals, waste. So there's a lot of tools that we can use there in transportation. Um, that are directly related to the kinds of uh, measures we might want to put into place to reduce carbon actions. They're also places of people and centers of equity. And I'd say, you know, the time we're in now, uh, that's such a, that's such a, uh, there's such a consciousness, such a consciousness on climate, like since COVID. And I thought, you know, the climate issue, I thought, oh, we're done. You know, like COVID's going to take over. Nobody's going to be talking about climate. But strangely, it made people realize that big crises can happen. And it's lifted up the climate issue as well as the equity issue, as we've seen. So it is really important moment. A lot of this work plays out in cities, large and small. And um, so I'll stop there. I think this is just uh, this working in larger cities, uh, engaging our communities, thinking about climate in, in concert with equity. The moment is now for that. And I and, and so um, I'm really glad that we're having an opportunity focus on that in this program. Mary, thanks Thanks for that. I, I was of two minds too when, when I heard Laura's question. The connectivity I think is, is so important, particularly what we see um, and can expect to see more of in terms of migration um, to, from large urban centers into more rural and remote communities um, as cities become expensive. Um, and as people move out of cities for other reasons as well. And as we continue to see immigration into um, Canada from other countries, I, I anticipate um, based on data that I've seen and experts that I've talked to on this topic that we'll also see um, additional uh, ways of people moving from larger areas into more rural and remote ones. So the connectivity for those reasons and more, I think is so important. Um, and when I think about communities, and I, I did try to focus on this on the, the types of rural communities and small communities that I live in now and that I've mostly supported across my career, communities really do play an essential role. Um, I think personally that communities are the driving force for the systematic changes that will enable just transitions. And I think that for a few reasons. Um, First, communities are the direct witnesses to the effects of climate change. I thought that um, North Shore PEI, you laid this out so nicely in the welcome packet, um, but communities um, around uh, the U.S. and Canada, coast to coast to coast to coast, are really the direct witnesses to the effects of climate change. Um, 
communities can also create the shared vision for how we counter the effects. I think sometimes because people feel so tied to the places where they live and they work and they play, um, and they're more likely to know the neighbors that are in close proximity to them, it's often easier to create shared vision for how we counter the effects or how we move forward on really bold issues at the level of community, whether those are rural, remote, or larger. I noticed that communities um, are able to raise awareness about the impacts of climate change in large part because they are experiencing it and can really speak to lived experience and, to, and tell powerful stories that are, are specific and real. I also think that communities, whether on their own or together, have a really important collective voice. Um, I see communities right now holding corporations and governments accountable for their actions or for their lack of actions. Um, right here in, in the territory that I'm in, there's a conversation with government around the amount of economic um, reparation that should be offered to um, uh, the indigenous people who, who occupied this land before settlers came. Um, and there's, there's accountability um, that, that's being asked for um, in that conversation. Um, another uh, piece around collective voice, I see communities demanding um, the measures that are needed. I, I, was, I was going to say aggressive measures and then I paused myself because I, I don't think they are aggressive measures. I think they're, they're simply the measures that are needed. I learned earlier today um, from a friend and um, person that I deeply respect, Victor Bosolet with Setsi, um, about something happening in Seattle where there are efforts to um, have the amount of uh, taxes that people are paying um, to their municipality for their lands be given uh, in equal amounts to the indigenous people that lived on the lands prior to them. So I offer that as an example of, of the kind of measure that we need in order to um, achieve just transitions um, and achieve uh, the other outcomes that we need in our world. Um, and it's a community that's doing that. I also see um, communities really well able to support the creation and the testing and the iteration and scaling of solutions. Um, and through networks like this, being able to work together to understand what's working in what context um, for what groups of people and where it might work additionally and what the paths to scaling what might work additionally might be. Um, the last thing I want to say is, is I have been thinking a lot about technology recently and chat GBT in particular. And I feel like at this point we could put questions like this into a piece of technology and get responses. And that's okay. But it reminds me actually, rather than leaving me feel like, well, the only thing it leaves me feeling is, is that all that we have left is the most important thing which is the power of community, which is the power of connection, which is the power of the ability of people who bring relation and respect and deep care to one another to enable people to think differently and to enable action that might not have been possible otherwise. Um, communities can do that. Technology can't do that. Communities and groups of people who form communities are the only ones that can do that work that will eventually change our world that is changing our world for the better. Amazing. Thank you. And I appreciate those reflections on uh, the recent uh, AI news because I too have been wondering, like, it, are our jobs going out of uh, business? You know, I think everyone's asking themselves that. And I think when you work in the space of, of building community and building connections and relationships, like, that is that is one space that, yeah, technology's got nothing on us, right? But I do appreciate this um, conversation about the role of communities, big and small, because I think in the climate space, there's always such a focus, not always, but just often such a focus on um, international level and national level, like looking at Canada's um, emissions reductions efforts and provincial and really where this change happens and where the impacts of climate change are felt is on the ground in communities. And I just really appreciate you both for unpacking, um, unpacking that a little. Uh, Mary, I want to ask you a bit about uh, multi-solving because this is a concept that um, many who are following our work have seen. We've been um, embracing here at Tamarack. We've been using that term now the past couple of years. Um, we included it in the syllabus for this month, some readings on 
multi-solving and transform TO, Toronto's um, climate plan, uh, their approach to multi-solving, a case study on that. And we really wanted to ask you, what does multi-solving mean to you? And could you share a bit more about your journey, which you alluded to in your introduction around focusing much more on the, the climate piece specifically and broadening that within your work in Toronto and LC3 to more of a multi-solving lens? Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Um, well, I think, you know, multi-solving is, you know, that's a really direct explanation of what it is, trying to do more than one thing at a time. Um, think of it as being a parent, I guess was the analogy. Um, so this is an idea that, um, you know, an example of this could be maybe you're retrofitting a home and you're thinking more beyond energy efficiency. Um, you're thinking about hey, you know, how can we improve the comfort for the people living in this place? How can we improve the air quality? How could we offer cooling to um, maybe buildings that haven't had cooling and shield them from extreme heat? Um, how could we employ people here? How could we create benefits? Like, this is a, a, a concept, I think something really important to me about this concept that I've realized is that it doesn't happen naturally. It happens by design. So it's something that has to be considered at the outside of a program. I'm just going to step back for a moment and just give you a couple of stories about my experience. So I used to work for an energy auditing company, but a contract to do um, um, energy upgrades in social housing, single family social housing buildings in Toronto. And the people who were going in there, they told me, um, they arrived at the door, people would answer and they, and they would say, we're, yeah, we're here to, to do the service and they were thank God you're here because my stove doesn't work, my kid has asthma, and I've got mold. Can you help me out? And we had to say, no, we're going to replace your light bulbs, put in a shower head and a low flush toilet. Yay. And, uh, you know, we're in your place, we're disturbing you, we're in here, we're not addressing your problems at all. So it just, you know, so that was, that's a little snapshot, some of my experience, how we organized that program, what we were doing, getting into all those homes and doing this single singular focused thing that had, um, you know, very few benefits for people who were living there. Here's another example. Okay, so we were doing incentive programs, we're advocating for incentives to do building retrofits and we find, we start working with our, our colleagues at ACORN, they told us, this is what's happening our tenants are getting above guideline rent increases from landlords who get energy efficiency retrofits funded by public incentives. So who's paying, you know, who's paying for this, you know? So anyway, along the way, along my way, I've realized, you know, to my horror that, um, you know, the silo thinking that we have, the trying to solve one problem at a time is not only ineffectual, it's actually quite damaging. It can be quite damaging. It's really deepened my commitment over time because of these experience, experiences to understanding that we really have to think about these issues in tandem. The thing is, it gets really complicated. Like if we're starting to say, to it's hard enough to do a big building retrofit, like the kind we've done for years at the Atmospheric Fund. You have to get the finance, you have to build, you have to get people, you have to get contractors, uh, you have to get purchasing, navigating the city's purchasing you know, um, rules and then you have to create local jobs and engage the tenants in a, in a thoughtful way and ensure and you know that slows things down it's much you know much longer so this, uh, this is I don't want to what I want to say is that this is very complex and difficult work and it's a little bit radical because we're forced to step outside of our own areas of knowledge and expertise and that makes us feel unprofessional when our cities aren't organized like that our cities are organized in departments people have deep knowledge of those issues and it's not necessarily comfortable or thought to be appropriate to be jumping across and saying oh now i'm dealing with poverty reduction or health public health so it, it's quite difficult and radical and time consuming <laughs> and alien and it makes us work with people that and I'll just quote from one of my favorite books here. People we don't agree with, like, or even trust. That's from Adam Cain's book, <laughs> Collaborating good. with the Enemy. So it requires us to do some some work, and it might challenge our own personal knowledge and comfort. Um, this is part of the work. But 
And this is why Tamarack is such a wonderful organization, place to have this conversation because of the deep understanding of collaboration across diverse parties and you know, all that work, all that difficulty. You gotta do it really hard. What's the outcome? Look, it's positioning the climate solutions in a way that's a lot more relevant to a lot more people. We're never gonna lift the transformational change we need to give in our communities from our climate targets without making it relevant to more people. It helps us avoid entrenching these existing systems of bias, like we were doing in those examples I gave you from my experience. Um, making people coming to their homes with services they didn't ask for while they had great needs in other areas that were being ignored, you know. Um, and it leads us to ask new questions about um, solutions and about our own assumptions. Drives innovation because you blend up all these people that you don't usually work with in different perspectives. Really radical new ideas. This is, this is where innovation comes from. And finally, I just really feel committed that it's just going to create stronger, better, and more politically durable solutions uh, for climate and associated issues, equity issues. So I'll stop there for now. I think multi-solving, you know, we have some readings about it. Um, it's about design, and it's. I think it's just. I've come to realize in my practice that it's absolutely critical. It's actually a. It's a key performance indicator for all the low carbon cities Canada centers. We measure the extent to which our investments, grants, programs are driving multi-solving and driving community benefits. Um, so that's something we were going to keep a specific eye on and we'll be learning from across the country. Amazing, thank you. I want to invite audience members or cohort here to share questions that you have. Either use the raise hand function um, if you'd like to come off mute or feel free to put them in the chat if you're more comfortable with that. So we just have a couple more minutes. We're gonna go into small group discussions very soon. As I wait to see if there's any questions, um, Dania, maybe I'll turn to you. Mary, in your remarks just now, you spoke about the challenges and the necessity of working together um, across sectors and with residents and taking that whole community approach to change. And I want to ask you, Dania, if you could speak a little more about how you see collective impa impact playing a role here in moving the needle on complex challenges like climate change, like property reduction. So Thanks, Laura. I'm, I'm going to be a, a little edgy too on that question um, and say that, you know, I'm, I'm among many people who don't believe that collective impact is the be all and end all. I think the framework is like any framework, which is that it's flawed. Um, what it gets right, what I think it gets really right, yeah. is the focus on population level outcomes. Um, the unwillingness to settle for anything less than systems that work for everyone in communities and that are designed around people who have not been designed for in the past with them as the architects of the redesign is super right. Um, I think it's right that we, in order to achieve outcomes at that scale, we need to target strategies toward those who are most depressed by our current systems. It's right that real change requires multi-generational and multi-sectoral partnerships. It's right that those partnerships need to be grounded in data, data about systems, data about people's experiences, administrative data too. And it's right that partnerships really need to co-create internal and external communication strategies that make the issues relevant, like you said, Mary. Um, but there's lots of other frameworks and teachings too. You know, as you were talking, Mary, I was thinking about the overlap between multi-solving and collective impact. Um, and I was thinking about the indigenous teachings that I'm still learning about that have offered similar principles for a long time before collective impact came on the scene. So I think I wanna reframe the question as one that's about how outcomes-focused, resident-led, multi-sector, multi-generational partnerships um, can move the needle on complex challenges. And I think I, I answer the question with the question that I reframed. Um, the how is that these types of efforts can focus on each of those things. They can focus on outcomes. And when they do, um, they start to um, move outcomes in the way that in places like Portage, La Prairie, Manitoba, high school graduation outcomes are changing um, drastically for the better because the school is redesigning its approach to instruction around project-based and land-based learning. 
Um, if they focus on outcomes, what follows is a change to policies, governance structures, resource flows, ways of thinking and working um, that are really essential. Um, if they can be multi-sectoral, we can bring all the assets from business governments, nonprofits, citizen-led groups, other informal associations into the same space. And in the process, we can develop the relationships across all of those stakeholders, uh, excuse me, not stakeholders, but all of those partners um, to be able to really challenge one another on impacts um, unintended or by design that each of those systems is creating or that the group of systems together is creating. And when they're multi-generational, um, we get the energy and the perspectives of youth and we get the energy and perspectives of our elders. Um, and we get the energy and perspective of people like me who are somewhere in the middle um, with relationships. Um, I'm having a Zoom moment where an animal has just walked in, excuse me for the disruption. Um, people in the middle who have had relationships with um, um, folks across both generations can all be working together to, to bring their assets. So thanks for the question, Laura. I'll stop there. Thanks. I really appreciate the reframe as well. Um, so there is a question, Mary, for you in the chat from Robbie from Regina about if you could share those KPIs and how you're going about measuring that or point point folks in the directions. I don't know if there's any resources you could pop in the chat. Yes, I'll, I'll dig those out. It's a little bit involved, but I can tell you what the indicators are. I'll put it in the chat. And then uh, if you're interested in the rubrics or evaluation tools, would that be used for those? Uh, you can contact me and I'll be able to tell you a bit more about that too. Great, thank you. And um, I'm realizing there's one other thing I wanted to share, which is Mary, what you shared with us recently about your work on um, where you partnered, uh, LC3 partnered with FCM, exploring the role of Canadian cities in accelerating electric vehicle adoption. And you developed this primer. I just popped in there with uh, six key actions. So just wanted to invite you if you want to share briefly about that project. Yeah, thanks, Laura. I wanted to have a chance to tell all of you about this tool that I think you might find interesting. And it's really about how you, as community members, could bring attention to your city councils uh, regarding some particular things that could really help accelerate um, electric, electrification of transportation in your cities. So that's a document that um, I hope would be useful there. And I think, you know, this is an, I just would invite you also to consider the question, um, how might we, you know, there's going to be a lot of money and a lot of effort into transitioning us to electric vehicles. How might we ensure that effort and, and investment brings benefits to our most vulnerable communities? When we're thinking about design right now, about this new type of transportation system, how are we going to make sure that benefits are spread around that there's no harms. I mean, we're thinking right now, for example, um, what if, um, you know, we're putting electric vehicle incentives into the marketplace to buy new cars, but that only applies to people who can afford a car in the first place. And is it siphoning off public funding for transit that might be supporting options? Or how is it contributing to the expansion of transportation options for more vulnerable people? So that's a question we might have together and be thinking about. And also, like one of the action cities are taking, for example, is they're asking drivers of car shares um, that put huge amounts of mileage in bigger cities. You know, we've got these cars running around, Uber, Lyft, and so forth. We might ask them, require them to be uh, electrified, those vehicles, so they don't emit. Um, but how, how, is, how is that going to work out for Uber drivers? We, don't, we know those folks aren't exactly uh, shielded from, you know, um, equity issues already and what will happen what kind of burden might fall to people who are who might not be the appropriate ones to support that burden in order for us all to enjoy reduced air pollution and increased electrification of vehicles in our city so i'm just giving you a couple of examples that are coming to my mind that are very practical in nature i don't have the answers by the way counting on you guys um for us to think about these together 
In the meantime, the policy frameworks at the cities are very important to be able to draw an important place to embed these equity principles. So I invite you to look at that document. It does offer some equity perspectives on each and every one of those, um, those policy avenues. And I'm happy to chat with you later. Um, I'm, good, I'm popping my email here in the chat about any of this work. Great, thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, we're going to go into small group discussions now. So I'm going to once again share my screen here. And what we're inviting you to chat about in groups of around five is well, introduce yourself.